We once had a church member who worked for the IRS, but no one ever knew. People who collect your taxes don't like to mention it at the parties they attend. Tax collectors tend to keep a low profile. And that was surely the case with Zacchaeus. For if today's tax collectors are not the most popular people at the party, that was especially true in Roman times. The extravagances of Rome were funded by taxes collected among the colonies. The empire would hire a local person, then provide him some military force, assign him a collection quota, and then let the fellow pocket whatever he gathered above what he owed Rome. And Zacchaeus was Rome's man in Jericho. Zacchaeus was getting rich off the backs of his own countrymen, the Jews. And only one thing could cause a man to absorb the ire of a whole community. That was greed. More than respect or popularity or patriotism or peace, Zacchaeus desired to be rich. Among the Jews in Jericho, Zacchaeus' approval rating was just a little bit higher than the United States Congress. Yet at the end of the day, everything will change in this man's life. An amazing transformation will take place. Zacchaeus will go from greedy to generous. He'll experience a turnaround in the eyes of the public. And it's all because of his encounter with a man from Nazareth named Jesus. Chapter 19 begins. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Notice he was the chief or the arch tax collector. Zacchaeus was a big will in a corrupt system. He was the regional authority for Rome. He had underlings working for him. That made him the most hated. And he sought to see who Jesus was. Now, Zacchaeus had heard a lot about Jesus, no doubt. In fact, one of his colleagues, a Galilean tax collector, was now a follower. You remember Levi had been so transformed that he got a new name, Matthew. And perhaps the two men knew each other. I would imagine they did. Matthew and Zacchaeus, think of them, grabbing a falafel together for lunch. And Levi recounting his story of how Jesus changed his life. Boy, Zacchaeus had heard enough about Jesus to want to see him for himself. It was dangerous for such a hated man to venture out into a crowd unprotected. Yet there was such a longing in this man's heart for forgiveness and for freedom and for acceptance and for purpose that he combed the parade route for a perch where he could see Jesus. But he could not find a place because of the crowd. For he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. We learn here that Zacchaeus was vertically challenged. He was a short fellow. And there were taller guys who lined the streets. But Zacchaeus wouldn't be denied, so he shimmied up a sycamore tree. He goes out on a limb in search of a new life. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. And I would imagine that Jesus chuckled. Don't you think so? (laughs) It was a comical sight. 
a dignified city official, literally up a tree. And Jesus initiated the conversation. He said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. I would imagine it had been quite some time since Zacchaeus had smiled. Andrew Carnegie once said, millionaires who laugh are rare. My experience is that wealth is apt to take the smiles away. I've heard it said, money will buy a fine dog, but only love will make him wag his tail. Zacchaeus had loads of money, but it had been a long time since he had wagged his tail. Until Jesus came into his house, Joy and Zacchaeus were total strangers. You see, lonely Zacchaeus didn't get many dinner guests. In the ancient world, to enter a home, to share a meal, was the ultimate act of acceptance. This is why when Jesus enters Zacchaeus' home, he receives him joyfully. Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by Jesus' show of grace that he'll want to follow him for the rest of his life. It's amazing, really that just a little bit of love, what it'll do to revive a heart, just a little bit. This man's whole life changes on this one invitation. Once a children's hospital employed a tutor who helped the patients keep up with their work and their their school uh, assignments. One day this tutor was called about a student in the burn unit. This little boy needed help with his English grammar. Well, when the tutor visited, she wasn't prepared for the severity of the child's condition. He had been burned over most of his body. She didn't know what to say. Finally, she offered to help him with his nouns and verbs. Later, she was so embarrassed by her suggestion, it seemed silly to mention grammar to a child who was fighting for his life. The next day, though, when the tutor bumped into the burn unit nurse, she apologized for her awkwardness. But the nurse replied, you don't understand. We've been worried about that boy for weeks. Yet ever since your visit, his attitude has changed. He's fighting back, responding to the treatment. It's as if he's decided to live. Later, the little boy explained, it dawned on me they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and verbs with a dying boy. The tutor's visit had given him hope. And this was Zacchaeus' logic. Jesus wouldn't visit a hopeless cause. Evidently, Zacchaeus wasn't out of God's reach after all. No one is beyond the grasp of his grace. But when they, the Jews in Jericho, saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Oh, boy, Like, like the prodigal son's older brother, They didn't understand the heart of God. Reminds me of a story I heard during Bill Clinton's presidency. You remember the shenanigans that went on in the Oval Office. A Baptist pastor was so upset by the immorality that he said of the president, don't you understand? This man doesn't deserve grace. Yet, by its very definition, grace is something no one deserves. It's love that's initiated by God, not prompted by us. It's favor that's unearned. But once grace is received, its impact becomes explosive. Look in verse 8. 
Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Here's the outward evidence of Zacchaeus' inward transformation. He pledges half his income to charity and restores to the people he cheated fourfold. Real repentance will repair the damage done and make restitution to the people it has offended. After this transformation, Zacchaeus could have been elected mayor of Jericho. What a difference Jesus makes. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Rather than condemn, Jesus comes to save. And then verse 11, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, this was a reoccurring misconception, remember. Again, it's gaining momentum. In a few days, the crowds in Jerusalem will lay out palm branches across Jesus' path and hail Jesus, their Messiah. They'll expect him to lay out plans for the overthrow of Rome and to launch a political revolution. But by midweek, the Jews were so disillusioned with Jesus' response that they cried out for his blood. They wanted a visible, tangible kingdom, and they wanted it now. Whereas Jesus was in it for the long haul, and he was at work spiritually in men's hearts. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas. Now, at the time, a mina was a measure of currency. It was said to be three months of a working man's wage, thus a sizable sum. And this nobleman said to them, do business till I come. Then verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know now that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Now in a sense we're living in between verses 14 and 15. Jesus is the nobleman who's gone to heaven to a far country but he's promised to return. While he's been gone, an uprising has occurred. Citizens of earth have revolted and challenged his authority. <coughs> They'll certainly be punished. But when he returns, Jesus also will hold his servants accountable for what we did in his absence. Jesus commanded us to be about his business. How faithful have you been with what he's given you? Have you made good investments, spiritual investments? Hear again the words of Jesus to his servants, to us. Do business till I come. Do business till I come. Jesus is coming back soon, but that doesn't mean we should opt out of society. His coming is no reason to quit our job or drop out of school or sell our belongings or move to a mountaintop to wait on him. 
No, our job is to do business. Whatever business God has called you to do, it's your job to get her done. It's been said, live as if Jesus were coming back tomorrow, but plan as if he weren't coming back for 10,000 years. A Christian's future hope should motivate us, not paralyze our present. Well, then came the first servant saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. I mean, this fellow had managed to produce a profit, a tenfold return for his master. And here's his reward. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. Notice here, faithfulness to God in this life is rewarded with position and authority in the future kingdom Jesus will build on this earth. That means stay at your post, fulfill God's calling, do his business, and one day you'll be governor, you'll be mayor in God's kingdom. Faithfully serve him now and you'll reign with him then. But fall asleep on the job now, you'll end up the dog catcher. Verse 18, and the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. You see, the servant had misread his master. His boss was known to be clever and cunning. He was a risk taker. He was a shrewd businessman. And we, too, need to make sure we don't misread our master. You know, Jesus is still known for his risky and radical maneuvers. What a risk it was to leave the halls of heaven and be born an infant in this sin-stained world. The Almighty became dependent on a teenage mother. Can you imagine the risk that took? I love G.K. Chesterton's comment on the Incarnation. He says, alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. Jesus was not afraid to take a colossal risk to love us and reach us and save us. Well, the master addresses his timid servant in verse 23. He says, why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And we need to understand about the spiritual realm, how things work. In the spiritual realm, always remember, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. See, when you use what God has given you, he gives you more. God wants us to be a pipeline, not a holding tank. Blessings should flow not just into us, but through us to others. There was an article that appeared 
a while ago in the Los Angeles Times. It was written by a columnist named Ann Wells. She writes, My brother-in-law opened the drawer of my sister's bureau and lifted out a tissue-wrapped package. He handed me the slip. It was exquisite. Silk, handmade, and trimmed with lace. A price tag with an astronomical sum was still attached. Old Jan bought this nine years ago on a trip to New York City, but she never wore it. She was saving it for a special occasion. I guess this is that occasion. He took the slip and put it on the bed with the other clothes we were taking to the mortician. His hands lingered on its softness. Then he slammed the drawer and he turned to me. Don't ever save anything for a special occasion. Every day you live is a special occasion. I remembered those words through the funeral and the days that followed. I'm still thinking about his words and they've changed my life. I'm not saving anything. We use our good china for special events like losing a pound or getting the sink unstopped or the first camellia blossom. Words like someday and one of these days are fading from my vocabulary. If it's worth seeing or hearing or doing, I want to see, hear, and do it now. Every morning when I open my eyes, I tell myself that it is special. See, here's the lesson. Hoard God's blessings and he'll take them away. Use them for the good of others and for his glory and he'll multiply them. But notice how the parable ends. Remember the people who were part of the uprising against God? Jesus addresses them. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Wow. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, will return to earth in awesome, lethal power to crush his enemies and rule with a rod of iron. Jesus means business. That's why we should be about his business. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now realize, Jerusalem is situated in the hills of Judea. It actually sits on the top of five hills. North is what's called Mount Scopus. Southwest is Mount Zion. The city center is the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah. South of Moriah is Mount Ophel. And east of the city is Mount Olivet or the Mount of Olives. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. Bethany is on the east slope of the Mount of Olives, just below the crest of the hill. Thus, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem from the east, from Jericho in the Jordan Valley. And he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Oh, that we were like the owners of that colt and yielded 
whenever the master had need of us. Well, then they brought him, brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. They make this impromptu saddle for Jesus. And notice the miracle that's going on here. A young donkey that had never been ridden is saddled up and stationary under the weight of its first passenger. Normally, an untamed animal would need to be broken and harnessed first. This cult, though, instinctively senses that he needs to submit to the master. This is no ordinary rider. Jesus is once again demonstrating his mastery over nature, this time even the animals. And then verse 36, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now, they're still east of the summit. And as they spread out their clothes along the path, the other gospels mention that they also line the street with palm fronds, palm branches. Together, this was the Jewish way of rolling out the red carpet. They're giving Jesus now the royal treatment. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of In other words, he's topping the hill now. A panoramic view of Jerusalem now lays out in front of him. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd lining the street begins to chant Psalm 118, a song written about the Messiah some 1,000 years before his arrival on this day. Here is the only public demonstration that Jesus ever orchestrated. And he did it to fulfill prophecy. This day's date, to the best of our recollection, was April the 6th, 32 A.D., And if you study Daniel chapter 9, you'll discover that this was the date predicted by the prophet Daniel 500 years in advance. It was the exact day Messiah would present himself to the nation Israel. Daniel teaches that 69 periods of seven years or 483 years would elapse from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah. That decree was given by the Persian emperor Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, and it was issued on March the 14th, 445 B.C. Now, Daniel's living in Babylon, and he's using the Babylonian calendar, which consisted of 360-day years. Thus, when you mark off 483 years times 360, that's 173,880 days. And when you mark that off on the calendar, you come to April the 6th, 32 AD, the exact day Jesus makes this donkey ride. You see, the Jewish leaders, they should have known Daniel's prediction in the importance of this day. And to make sure God's people didn't miss it, God had even spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not like a king on a horse, but humbly on a donkey, Messiah would come. This was the day the pieces of the puzzle should have come together for Israel's leaders. 
They were aware of the prophecy, how God would affirm his son. But rather than connect the dots, these Jews hardened their hearts. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, they knew Psalm 118 spoke of the Messiah. And Jesus was now basking in its praise. They wanted him to rebuke the crowd. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I really wish the disciples had just shut up for a minute or two. It would have been really cool to hear the original Rolling Stones, praise the Lord. Hey, talk about some real rock music. This is it. In fact, every time I go to Jerusalem, I bring back with me some rocks from the Mount of Olives. They'll let you take them, take them home with you. I hope that one day I'll hear them sing Messiah's praise. And I suppose they would have already done so, but I keep beating them to the punch. Well, now as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace... But now they are hidden from your eyes. Imagine this was Israel's special day to receive their Messiah. The day that had been predicted for over 500 years. But when it finally arrived, the most important day in Jewish history, they were asleep. And it caused Jesus to weep. He mourns over their blind, stubborn hearts. Instead of relishing this glorious day. Jesus has to speak of an ominous day, yet future. And he does so in verse 43. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus now predicts, makes his own prediction. He sees four decades into the future, to the date 70 AD. The Roman army, led by its general, Titus Vespasian, will now invade Israel and lay siege to the capital of Jerusalem and to its temple. We know from history that that siege lasted for 143 days. In the end, the temple was burned to the ground and the once glorious city was reduced to rubble. An unbelievable 600,000 Jews were killed. Many thousands more were forced into slavery or killed for sport in the Roman amphitheaters by their gladiators. It was a holocaust of Jewish people. And on the temple mount, not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus says here. You can go with me to Jerusalem today and we'll visit the archaeological dig just south of the Temple Mount. It's known as the Southern Excavations. And there today in the ravine below where the temple stood sits piles of huge stone that once made up the temple structures. These stones were toppled by the Roman soldiers, fulfilling the words of Jesus here in Luke 19. Not one stone was left upon another. The whole temple platform was leveled to the ground. As the story goes, the temple exterior was overlaid with a thin veneer of gold. 
So when the temple burned, the gold melted and rolled into the cracks between the stones, and the Roman soldiers disassembled the stones to loot the gold. Verse 45. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. In the temple precincts, Jesus saw priests making a buck off God, and it angered him. Still does, by the way. You see, to pay the temple tax, worshipers were required to swap their Roman coins for temple shekels. But the priests charged a hefty exchange rate, ripping off the people and the temple. They also required worshipers to offer a priestly certified sacrifice. And of course, such a lamb could be purchased only at an inflated price. It was all a scam. And Jesus cleansed the temple of these greedy priests. Earlier, Jesus cleaned house with a whip. This time, Jesus gets so mad, he uses his bare knuckles. And he shouts in verse 46. It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Again, Jesus quotes scripture, Isaiah 56, verse 7. Churches today need to take inventory of their motives. Do we make room for people and for practices that are only out to make money? Are we, or are we primarily a house of prayer? I think if we majored on prayer, we'd weed out the crooks, wouldn't we? And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. The religious establishment is now looking for a way to eliminate Jesus. His popularity, though, is his protection. In 1966, seems like such a long time ago, doesn't it? Anybody remember 1966? Well, if you were around at the time, you might remember the mamas and the papas. They had a hit song, Monday, Monday. The lyrics went, Monday, Monday, can't trust that day. On Monday morning, you gave me no warning of what it would be. That Monday evening you would leave and not take me. Monday couldn't guarantee that Monday evening you would still be here with me. Sadly, the author of those lyrics had been dumped by his girlfriend on a Monday. And in a sense, the same tragedy befell Jesus. On Sunday, he rode his donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. But Jesus had upset the priests. By Monday, the Jews were so mad at Jesus, they were plotting to kill him. As in the song, a glorious Sunday had turned into a sad, treacherous Monday. Chapter 20 begins on Monday. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. And I like the showdowns. When I watch the movie, I look for a good movie with a showdown, like the gunfight at the OK Corral, something like that. High noon at the OK Corral. Here are the villains, the chief priests and the scribes and the Jewish elders. They walk into the temple to take on Jesus. A blazing confrontation ensues. 
Jesus is going to gun them down. In verse 2, the inquisitive Jews, they speak to Jesus, saying, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is he who gave you this authority? Now remember, Jesus had challenged Jewish authority. He basically said to them, what right do you have to turn my father's house into a den of thieves? Now they're picking up the gauntlet. They're responding. Well, who are you to tell us what we should and shouldn't do? Where do you get your authority? They've made it a battle of clout. And of course, their question, like all their questions this day, was a trap. Realize Authority was a touchy subject under Roman rule. If Jesus claimed divine authority, he could be be painted as a potential enemy of Rome. If he said he lacked authority from God, he would lose his credibility with the masses. Either way, Jesus answered, the Jewish leaders thought that he would be able, they would be able to accuse him. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. In other words, Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? The Jewish authorities had tried to put Jesus on the spot, but here Jesus returns the favor. Verse 5, and they reasoned among themselves saying, wait a minute, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they're persuaded that John was a prophet. Oh boy, the master outmaneuvers his enemies here. And so they answered that they did not know where it was from. They just played dumb. And by the end of the day, playing dumb won't be that difficult for these fellows. Try to match wits with the master and you'll end up the dimwit. Throughout this Monday, the most brilliant minds in Judaism try to argue Scripture with its author. They attempt a theological debate with the theos himself. And when you try to biblically spar with the original Bible answer, man, you only prove how dumb you are. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's saying, if you won't go out on the limb to answer me, then why should I go out on the limb to answer you? Round one in this debate goes to Jesus. Then Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, this was a common business arrangement in Israel. A landowner would transform a tract of land into a vineyard. Then he would lease it to a vine dresser, expecting a percentage of the profits come harvest time. Well, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. See, this was horrible. The tenants had forgotten they were tenants. They must have gotten drunk on the profits that they had received. 
So they treated these, the owner of the vineyard, they treated his servants brutally. Well, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I mean, the vineyard owner didn't want a wine. Didn't want to whine about it. He wants to take appropriate action. Perhaps his own son will command some respect. I'll send my beloved son, he says. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. In ancient times, ownership of a particular parcel was not always clear. And these Jewish leaders think that by killing the owner's heir, they can assert a claim on the vineyard. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Suddenly it dawned on these Jews that Jesus' parable was really a prophecy. In fact, a prophecy that would be fulfilled within the week. See, Israel was the vineyard. Just a few feet from where this confrontation occurred, carved grapevines adorned the big doors of the temple, a symbol of Israel. God himself was the owner of the vineyard. The Jewish leaders were its tenants. The owner's servants were the prophets. His son was Jesus. After beating the prophets and trying to steal the kingdom from God, the Jews are now poised to eliminate God's son. See, Jesus is confronting the very men who are now plotting his murder. And notice verse 16, the owner promises to destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. As we talked about earlier, this was fulfilled in 70 AD after the Jews rejected the witness of the apostles in the early church, God sent Rome to sack Jerusalem. The invasion dismantled the institutions of Judaism from the priesthood to the temple. And God's work in the world shifted from Israel to the church, so much so that by the second century AD, the makeup of the church was almost exclusively Gentile. Verse 17, then Jesus looked at them. And the Greek word is more specific. It means he saw through them. Jesus looked right through them. They responded to the parable by being aghast. Certainly not. They would never kill the owner's son. Yet that it was exactly the treachery that they were plotting at that moment. And Jesus said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. It speaks of the Messiah and his rejection by the Jews. See, at the time, Judaism was all about religion and legalism and ritualism and self-righteousness and prejudice. Jesus was all about freedom and love and a relationship with God and with others. This made the Jews think of Jesus as an oddball. He didn't fit in with their priorities. Thus, they reject him. But the one they reject will end up the chief cornerstone, the foundation stone of a new house for God, 
the church. And then verse 18 leaves us with an ominous warning. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Friends, come to Jesus broken and humble and surrendered, and he will lift you up or harden your heart, and he'll grind you to powder. We're told in the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. They were seething in anger, but the showdown isn't over. This debate with Jesus is going to continue. Here's what we've seen today. A little guy with a big heart ends up with a big heart after meeting Jesus. We're to be about his business until Jesus returns. And then we walked with Jesus down the Mount of Olives to a cheering crowd. And it's no coincidence that today, Palm Sunday, is the anniversary of that day, the most important day in history, the day the prophets predicted that Messiah would present himself to his people. And I hope you don't miss him today. I hope you bow before him as king. And Jesus' first order of business was to clean out the temple, first of its greedy practices, then second of its blinded theology. But let's not leave here today without Jesus' warning ringing in our ears. We can rest on the rock that is Christ, or one day that rock will grind us to powder. Will you fall on Jesus, or will he fall on you? The choice is ours.